0: Well, good morning. This morning's message is uh, really focused on suffering. How many of you are suffering right now in your life? Everybody's got trials. Everybody's got heartaches. Everybody's got pain and sorrow. It is just part of life, isn't it? Uh, this message I've entitled, How Deep the Father's Love for Us, though, because uh, my hope is that you'll see from the passage that we're looking at today that that those trials that we experience in our life are actually God showing His love toward us as His children. And so uh, it's all about perspective this morning. My wife likes reality shows, and last night we... Well, she doesn't like all of them, but she likes survivor and and she likes uh, what's that show called the great Great British Baking Show? How many of you like that show? so i am I watched it with her last night, and I can say firsthand, I am now acquainted with what suffering is. But as I look back over the years of my life, you know, there's there's a few events that stand out and you probably are the same as me, right? There's a few events that stand out in your life that really take sort of dominance as landmarks right in your life. And, and for me, obviously, my wedding day was was the biggest. But uh, but beyond that, and, and I'm not talking about obviously coming to christ being born again was a big day but i don't remember when that day was um it was more of a gradual dawning with me than it was like a a day that i could remember but the birth of my children i would say was probably the biggest landmarks of my life i remember holding I was actually afraid to hold my son. You know, we had gone through so much trauma leading up to the delivery and then an emergency C-section right at the end. And they they took this little bag of bones and they were sitting him up on the table measuring him and stuff. And and he was just so pathetic looking and and he was, you know, he was sitting there crying. And and I was like, am I allowed to hold him? You know, it just I was I was frightened to even hold him. He looked so fragile. But it, it soon became um, a reality to me that I was going to be responsible for this little guy uh, for the rest of his life, really, for the rest of my life, that I would be his father and he would be my child. And the same, obviously, for my daughter. Well, in, a, in a much greater way, uh, we're going to see this morning how great our Heavenly Father loves us uh, in the same way and and how committed he is to his children the way I was and am committed to my children in a much greater way. God cares for us, his children. And so um, I'm going to have you turn to Hebrews chapter 12. And let me just say that God's God's love for his children is what drives his his correction of them, his discipline of them, his, his correction. Um, and so the context of Hebrews 12 is suffering. There's no way around it. It's suffering. You can look over at chapter 10, uh, verse 36, and, and I'll prove my point along as we go here. But but the point of this passage is that the the nation of Israel... Uh, the Hebrews, they were going through tremendous suffering. I mean, this is right around the time the temple was destroyed, you know, and the nation was being persecuted not only from uh, Christians were not only being persecuted um, by other Jews, but they were being persecuted uh, by the Gentile powers of the world as well. And so they knew suffering firsthand. Uh, they knew it like nothing we know today uh and so here uh, in hebrews twelve we're going we 're going to read about suffering but but from the perspective that and, and this is a big question, how does God use suffering to train us in righteousness you know i'm a hospice chaplain, and I deal with people at the end of their lives all the time. And they're suffering many things, you know. There's many things that can go wrong with people, with families at the end of life. And um, and, the, and the reality is everybody wants to know, what's the big question? Why me, right? Why me? Why is this happening to me? Why is my family going through this? Why am I suffering? Well, if you're a believer... Suffering is to be expected in this life because it's it's part of our identity with Christ. And so my hope is by looking at this passage, we're going to see that this morning and it's going to alter our perspective on suffering. Perhaps we'll even come away from it thinking I've been blessed by the trials that I've been through in life. They're a blessing to me because they've led me to where I am today. Rather than being embittered over them because the outcome or the the trial itself was not pleasant to go through. And and believe me, I've gone through some trials in my life, and I've I've been stuck in that place of bitterness, and so I know what it's like. Um, but it's a it's a mental perspective shift that sometimes God's best for us is pain. Is. Discipline is reproof is correction um, and and we're going to see that in his providence God uses trials to correct us okay so turn to Hebrews chapter twelve verse three. And I'm just going to read all the way down actually to verse 17 because I'm going to take this whole thing and I'm not going to treat it in as much detail as I normally would. I'm actually going to kind of fly across the treetops because I want you to see the sweep of the passage, okay? So, for consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by Him. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, and He scourges every son whom He receives. shall we not much more rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good so that we may share His holiness. All discipline for a moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Therefore, Strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight the paths for your feet so that the limb, which is lame, may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it many be defiled. And there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. And I'll explain to you how that last section kind of ties into everything here. But we're going to be looking at... Uh, at three reasons why our Heavenly Father disciplines His children. Three reasons, and my hope is that you'll be encouraged by the depth of His love for you this morning. Why does God put us through trials in life? Why does He discipline us? Why is there pain? Why do the righteous suffer? That's really the question we're driving at. Well, the first reason... He disciplines his children is because of his nurture as I said when I held that little baby in my arms I knew I was going to be responsible to nurture and care for that child so so why does God discipline us it's for our nurture again look at verses uh, 3 to 8 and notice the word endurance shows up there right in verse 3 consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself. Consider Christ and what he has gone through, right? That's what he's saying. Christ suffered at the hands of godless men when he had done nothing wrong, but it was for a purpose. It was for a purpose. Consider him so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And then just a reminder, you have not yet shed blood. Um, you know, resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. How many of you struggle with sin here? Yeah, I don't know. I don't. Um, but, but, you know, we, we have trouble even saying we're going to mortify the flesh, right? We're going we're to subdue the flesh. We're going to control our minds. We're, we're talking here about uh, bringing the flesh under control to the point of shedding blood. How many of you have done that? Yeah, I don't think so. Right? Um, but he says, you've, you've forgotten the exhortation which was addressed to you as sons. Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Right? Don't forget what God is doing in your life. God has committed to you as a child to rid you of your sin problems, to sanctify you, and to conform you to the image of his son through suffering. And so every son whom God loves, he disciplines by necessity. Okay? And, and notice how many times the word son shows up. As sons, my son, my son, right? Now fathers nurture their children by lovingly disciplining them. And we were at the conference yesterday, and they were talking about spanking your children. It's corrective discipline. It's what it's supposed to be, not punishment and anger, but corrective discipline, causing pain to the with the goal that it would change a behavior. And verses three to four. Uh, As I said, provide the context here. It's it's suffering. The Jews were being called to consider Christ in the midst of their heartaches and their hardships so that they would not grow weary and lose heart in the context of suffering. But it's also not just from the outside. It's our own sin that could cause suffering. Now, sometimes our own sin in life leads us to do things that we shouldn't be doing. It leads us to places where we shouldn't be going. I can think right off the top, drug addicts, right? Drug addicts, people who become invested in that lifestyle, they end up suffering a lot. And it's by their own doing. And yet... What he's saying here is that the writer of the Hebrews is saying God's providence rules over all of this and that God uses suffering in all forms to conform us to the image of Christ, to refine us, to sharpen us, to to cause us to look to Christ. What does James tell us, right? He says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter what? Various trials different kinds of trials different kinds of things because those trials lead to something they lead to endurance and endurance has its perfect work that we would be mature in Christ so even James understands this issue this is not this is not a new issue for the church this was understanding how God uses suffering in their life, that there's a purpose to it. It's not just meaningless suffering. These are not just meaningless trials. These are for a purpose. It leads to sanctification. Now, sonship is all through the pages of Scripture. Israel is often referred to as God's son. Hebrews 11.1 1. David is called the son of God. 2 Samuel 7.14, Solomon is also a son to God, 1 Chronicles 28.6. Christ himself is the son of God, Luke 9.35. And in Galatians 4.4-7, the Gentiles are sons by adoption. And all of these things communicate something. They're all references to familial relationship. There's a relationship there. And what that means is father and son, father and children. You could say daughters, too. It's the Israelites. It's Christians. It's God's dealing with his children who are his by faith. Look at verses five to eight. This Old Testament quotation, we see it show up several places in the New Testament Because the concept of suffering and sonship are closely intertwined. Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. It's God's love for you. See, we can interpret suffering as why is God doing this? Well, what's the easy answer? because he loves you. But you would never say to that <laughs> you would never say that to somebody who's suffering, right? You would never say, "Gee, I'm really sorry your family is going through this tragedy. God must really love you." That would be insensitive, right? That would not be the thing to say. But the reality behind it is that God is somehow using this situation to refine you all and to grow you in your faith and in your trust of Him. And in that respect, He does love you. He does love you. Is God the author the author of evil? Let's talk a little theology for a minute. Well, the answer to that is no. God is not the author of evil. But he does use evil and suffering and trials and discipline for his purposes in the lives of his children. Romans eight twenty-eight and following. God causes all things to work together for good. Finish it with me. To those who love him, and who are called according to his purpose. All things. Now just to prove my point, let's flip around a little in the Old Testament, just a few passages. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 to 12. And this is going to sound very familiar because this is where it comes from. Uh, the passage that we're looking at. My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof for whom the Lord loves. He reproves even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. You know, when you're taking a child to spank them, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you, son. And I love you so much. I'm going to spank you. <laughs> it just, it's hard for us to get that in our head, right? That, that the bigger picture is you're correcting them because you love them. If you don't correct them and you let their sin take control of their lives, what are you doing to them? That's more abusive than corrective discipline. Look at Job five seventeen. Esther Job Psalms Proverbs. Job five seventeen. Behold, how happy is the man whom God reproves, so do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. It leads to your ultimate happiness. Psalm 119.75 I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. It's God's commitment to us. It's His faithfulness to discipline us. Because of His covenant love for us, I'll just take you to one more. Revelation 3.19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. As I said, we're going to see how that last part of the passage ties in. But it's... It has to do with repentance. So God is a committed father to his children. And one of the benefits of having him as your father is his loving and corrective discipline. And, you know, we could say the same thing about the church. One good thing about church membership, one benefit of it is... Church discipline. Now, we don't think of that as a benefit. We think of it as punishment or, or you know, some sort of middle age kind of thing. But, But what it is, is it's the shepherds of the church are committed to you as members that if you get caught up in sin, they're going to try to bring you back into the fold. They're going to lovingly correct you. They're going to come in groups, they're going to come as a whole church body to try to get you to turn away from your sin and to be renewed and restored to the fellowship of Christ and other believers. That's a benefit. That's a benefit, but most people see it as a bad thing. If God did not discipline you, And think about it this way. You would not be considered his child. So the fact that you go through trials and hardships, we could say, is because God loves you and you're his child. Now, ironically, the health and wealth gospel has done a lot of damage to this truth in the New Testament, and that is because, what are they promising you? Hey, you're never you don't have to suffer if you're a believer. You can have it all. You can have jet liners, you know, you can have big bank accounts, you can have big properties. You can have it all. Christians are supposed to be blessed financially and with physical prosperity. Is that the picture the New Testament paints for us? I don't think so. The church was never promised that it would reap material and physical well-being until the second coming. Until Christ returns for the church, but not in this life. In fact, he said, all who desire to live godly will suffer. Write this down. Suffering refines our faith. Prosperity ruins it. It's easier for a rich man to do what? Pass through the eye of a needle. Or a camel to am I saying that right? I didn't say that right. It's easy for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, right? I think I got that right. I've tried to thread a needle in my old age here, and and my arms aren't long enough. So you can imagine what that's like. Prosperity is not good for our faith. There's nothing sinful about being wealthy in and of itself, but it's a huge distraction. It's a huge distraction. And yet you see people who are crushed under suffering and what happens to their faith. Often it, it blossoms, it grows. Now I just want to clarify discipline versus punishment. Discipline is for the purpose of training the heart in righteousness. Punishment is for inflicting a penalty for a transgression. There's a big difference. God disciplines us because he desires our ultimate good, and he desires to continue to hold on to us through the process of restoration. To discipline somebody is is to get them to come back not to drive them away. And God is committed to disciplining us because he's our father and he desires to nurture us in our faith. And there's a a Christian author, his name is Carl Laney, and he said, many people fail to make a clear distinction between punishment and discipline. And there's a very significant difference between these two concepts. Punishment is designed to execute retribution for a wrong done. And discipline, on the other hand, is to encourage the restoration of the one involved in the wrongdoing. So think of it this way. You're drifting away from God. He's going to use discipline to drive you back to himself. So God disciplines us because of his nurture. Secondly... Our Heavenly Father disciplines us because of his nature, verses nine and ten. So the writer to the Hebrews here he, he sets up two comparisons between earthly fathers and our heavenly father that 's here in the text uh, in order to show you the superiority of god 's discipline to that of our earthly fathers. Our earthly fathers did it this way but God does it this way and God's discipline is always better because of these two reasons now in the greek there's this this little construction in the language it's it's two little words men and de and it what it means is on the one hand and on the other hand and that's how we know that it's a comparison here okay So he says, furthermore, on the one hand, that's where that would be in the text. Furthermore, on the one hand, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. On the other hand, shall we not much more rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? So our heavenly father deserves greater respect is the point that he's after here. Our Heavenly Fathers were disciplining us in the past. It's a past tense verb here. Ongoing past actions. They were disciplining us, and they chastised us with the result that we respected them. We, we remembered the pecking order in the home. We knew who was boss. We respected them. And while mothers do a lot of child training, biblically speaking, who's responsible for the child training? Dads. I heard a lot of crickets out there. Biblically, our father disciplines us. Our heavenly father disciplines us. Our earthly fathers are supposed to discipline us. But the point is that even the unpleasantness of chastisement leads children to respect their parents. That's the author's point, but he says in contrast or in comparison to that, our heavenly father disciplines us so that we will come under subjection to him and we will live. These are both future verbs. We will come under subjection to him and we will because of it find life. This is a Latin phrase. This is known as an a fortiori argument. And in other words, it's saying basically how much greater reason do we have for being subject to the authority and training of our Heavenly Father, the Father of our spirits, the one who gives life because of who He is and what He's doing in our lives. My mind went to Matthew 10:28 on this. In Matthew, it says, "Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body, both soul and body in hell." So the point is, if you respected your earthly Father, how much more respect does your heavenly Father deserve? for His loving correction and discipline of you? Well, the answer is obvious. Our Heavenly Father clearly deserves greater respect. The second comparison, our Heavenly Father desires our holiness. Verse 10. Again, I'm going to insert the words here. For on the one hand, they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But on the other hand, He disciplines us for our good, so that we may share His holiness. So our earthly fathers, they disciplined us literally for a few days, it says in the text. A few days, it's referring to the years that children are under their parental authority. Seems like forever, but it's only a few days by comparison to your entire life, proportionately. It's a short season of life. But during those years, sometimes fathers discipline you wisely, and sometimes they don't. Am I right? How many of you kids out there with, or young people would say, Mom and Dad, they're so unfair. Our daughter can remember every single time we spanked her. And her perception of the whole context. It's a crack up. But your earthly fathers, you know, they did the best they could with what they had. They're human. They're human. And the best of men are men at best. And regardless of whether or not they always enacted discipline wisely... Parental authority was still established through their discipline as a general rule. Now, by way of contrast, by way of comparison, our Heavenly Father, they say in counseling not to use the word always, but it's okay here because we're talking about God. God always disciplines us with the right motive. Always. He never makes mistakes. He has all the information. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. He, he never makes a mistake. And the purpose of his discipline is that we would share in his holiness. Even if it means there's suffering involved. His promise is that He will conform you to the image of His Son. Did His Son suffer? Absolutely. Now, holiness, we know, means separated or set apart or clean or pure, or God's case without sin. And it's the most basic of God's nature, characteristics. It's His primary attribute. And because He has shared His nature with us, By means of regeneration and indwelling, as Jeff read to us this morning, it's incumbent upon us as believers to reflect that holiness increasingly in our lives. One writer said we're to put to death what God has sentenced to death on the cross. Peter tells us, you know, be holy for I am holy. And it's that way with any new role in life, isn't it? You bring home a baby, you have to learn how to be a parent over time, right? You start a new career or a new job, you have to grow into that profession. When we're saved, it takes a lifetime to grow into the role of being a child of God, it doesn't come naturally. J.C. Ryle, a popular Puritan writer, he says this, We ask that God would make us holy, and it's a good request indeed, but are we prepared to be sanctified by any process that God in His wisdom may call on us to pass through? Are we ready to be purified by affliction, weaned from the world by bereavements, drawn near to God by losses, sicknesses and sorrow. It's good that God wants to make us holy, but are we really ready for whatever he's going to use to make us holy? It's a scary thought. But God is committed to freeing us also from the bondage of sin because of who he is. Because of his nature. He wants Christ's image to be reflected in us. I love what John MacArthur said here. He said, ironically, we're so sinful that even our desire for holiness can be misguided. Some people get so caught up in their own holiness that they look at the Trinity for a possible vacancy. That's brutal. See, it's God's holiness that He shares with us. Why do the righteous suffer? Because God determines what is good for us based upon His nurture of us. And at times, pain and suffering is the most loving thing that our Heavenly Father can do for His children because His purposes for us are based upon His goodness and His holiness because of His nature do you believe that he's your father do you trust in his goodness by the way my my wife and I have read this book by Gordon Wenham called the goodness of God you really should take a look at that book it's one of the best books on God's relationship to evil and how it's used In the lives of believers, do you long for His holiness? But this is the life of faith, isn't it? Seeing God as your Father, seeing life through those eyes, seeing the things that you're going through, and trying to understand how it all works together. It's the life of faith. Our Heavenly Father disciplines us because of His nurture, because of His nature, and finally because of our need. Verse 11, All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. I won't read the rest because I'll be talking about it in just a moment. But there are two needs here that sort of stick out right on the surface, and that's what I'm going to talk about. I don't have time to treat every little thing in the text, so like I said, we're just kind of doing a sweep here. But just a couple of thoughts to consider this morning. Our first need is that of righteousness. Righteousness in verse 11. Discipline yields something. It yields righteousness. And the text says that believers are trained, literally they're exercised by God's discipline. And this is an athletic metaphor. And it simply means that discipline, when it's rightly received, builds the muscles of righteousness. It gives them endurance in the faith. Remember the first few verses we looked at. You have need to endure It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. What about this word peaceful? Again, it's only peaceful when it's rightly received. And there's a couple of different thoughts on this. It's, it either means it's, it's peaceful while you're going through the midst of the suffering, or afterward, once you've gone through it, there's peacefulness as a result. Either way, the point is clear that the outcome or the product of God's loving discipline is the peaceful fruit of righteousness. I have to think of Psalm 23 here, the great shepherd psalm. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. And don't miss the word afterwards, or could be translated later, Neither God or Scripture commands us to enjoy the trial while we're going through it. It's not like it's fun times, right? It's not like it's great to go through seasons of heartache and pain. But what we're saying is that afterwards we are to consider them or to reckon those trials, as James says, all joy. Even if they're not. Because that's what they produce. They produce endurance, which leads to maturity in Christ. Look at it this way. If, if you never suffered, would your faith ever grow? I know mine wouldn't. So, the first need is righteousness. The second need... Two words, repentance and restoration. And this is where this story fits in at the end here. Verses 12 to 15. He says, Therefore strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. Make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all men and sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. This is important because the corporate community of the church is God's means for restoring the individual who is, quote, sick with sin. Nothing happens in a vacuum, and the, and the church suffers when somebody else is suffering in the church the whole church suffers we've all known somebody here I'm sure in the fellowship who has been going through a trial or a difficulty and, and when we see that happening it affects us all we pray for them we, we ache with them we, we bring them meals we, we love them But it affects us all. But in the same way, sin affects us all too. And when somebody falls into sin, it splashes on everybody. And so the idea is restoring those folks that have fallen into sin, restoring them back to the fellowship. There's several medical terms here for the restoring of health. Uh, restoring to health that which is unhealthy. Look at the text. You see uh, the phrase weak hands, feeble knees, um, paths straightened out for the feet, resetting the limbs that are out of joint. These are all metaphors for the body that is hurting because somebody has done something to affect the whole This language is borrowed from Isaiah 35, 3 and following. I won't have you turn there. I don't have time to explain it all to you. I'll just give you a, a synopsis here. The context there is the coming messianic kingdom. And the ultimate purpose of God's discipline is to bring about the repentance and restoration of those who have been enslaved to sin and to bring them under the lordship of Christ and his messianic reign. So if repentance and restoration is not brought about, then bitterness seethes beneath the surface and causes problems among God's people. It fractures, it crumbles the unity. This is the church that God sent Christ to shed His blood to redeem. And ultimately, he says, many become defiled. It. and so you have to think in terms of James 5 here that in the early church when somebody was in sin they may have fallen sick they may have become ill and what were they supposed to do they were supposed to call for the elders the elders were supposed to anoint them with oil pray over them allow them the opportunity to repent and then they would be welcomed back into the fellowship and thus restored to health. And the whole body then would be healed. Now, he gives an example here of Esau. He calls him an unrepentant and immoral and godless man. You see that? You remember the story of Jacob and Esau in your Old Testament, right? Right? That's a great story. Well, what did Esau do? He sold Jacob his birthright for a pot of stew, right? Must have been one good pot of stew. But there was no repentance on the part of Esau. He cried about it. He shed tears, but it didn't involve his intellect and his will he didn't understand why what he did was wrong, nor had he nor did he do anything to try to alter his decision and so Esau only felt the sorrow of the world that leads to regret and death, 2 corinthians seven eight through ten just emotion, no intellect, no will were involved just a bunch of tears. And it's, it's really a picture of church discipline. The ultimate goal of church discipline is to restore an individual to the church body. It's not to drive them away. It's not to get rid of them. It's not even so much to cause them pain, but what the side effect is of them holding on to their sin is is that they necessarily disfellowship themselves. Do you understand? By holding on to their sin, they necessarily go down a path where they feel the pain of separation from the rest of the body. It is corrective discipline to to shut them out to the sense that they feel the pain of loss, and that hopefully that will startle them enough to where they'll they'll be shaken to their senses and want to repent and come back. All this to say God knows what is needed for His people to maintain relationships, and He knows what's needed in our lives to keep us walking in the paths of righteousness. And He will always bring us back to Himself, and He will use all means at His disposal to do so. Why? We said it initially. Because He loves you, and He's committed to you, as a father is to a child. So based upon His nurture, His nature, and our need... That's where the faith part comes in. We have to believe that God loves us and that he desires the best for us as his children. It's all about perspective and faith. Our old pastor used to tell us that when we get to the hard places in life, it's your theology that gets you through. Well, it's good to think on the depth of the Father's love for us. Whatever trial you may be facing right now, I don't, I don't know. I know some of you are going through difficulties. I know your hearts are aching over loss. I know there's pain involved with life in general. But God intends it for your good... Somehow, some way, because you're his child. And in that, I think we can find hope and joy and endurance to persevere in the faith. We just need eyes to see. We need eyes to see. Let me pray for us this morning, and we'll, we'll call it a day. Father, we confess with all the saints that we are your children and that we cry out to you, Abba, Father, as your adopted children, as heirs of your kingdom, as heirs of Christ, that we love you and we thank you for holding on to us. Even when we're faithless, we know you will be faithful. Lord, even when we get caught up in sin, we know that you will bring us back. We know that you'll never allow us to drift too far. And that even the sufferings and the trials that we go through in this life, the pain and the heartache associated with with difficulties and, and sufferings, that somehow that all works together for our good to conform us to the image of Christ. We know that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Certainly not things that are created. Certainly not people or situations that we go through. For we know your covenant love has been fixed on us and you will not let us go. And so we cling to Christ by faith and we thank you for considering us as your children. We love you and ask that your Holy Spirit would help us to walk in the Spirit and to see with eyes of faith that you might receive glory and honor and that Christ might be reflected in us. We pray these things for His sake. Amen.